What was life like in Ukraine after World War II? How did Ukraine gain its independence and how did Russia feel about it? What events have happened in Ukraine that have led us to this current moment in history? These and many other questions we'll answer in this episode, part two of the last 100 years in Ukraine. Welcome to Wiser World, a podcast for busy people who need a refresher on all things world. Here we explore different regions of the globe, giving you the facts and context you need to think historically about current events. I truly believe that the more we learn about the world, the more we embrace our shared humanity. I'm your host, Allie Roper. Thanks for being here. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for all of the shares of the podcast so far. And please continue to share. I am so glad it's helping to put some pieces together to see the overarching picture of the nation of Ukraine. I obviously leave out a ton of details, but sometimes getting that bird's eye view can be really helpful. All right, let's get right back into this. We covered a ton of history in part one. We saw millions of Ukrainians die in World War I at Stalin's hand during the Holodomor famine in the early 1930s, again in World War II. Ukraine had a period of time it was occupied by the Nazis as well. We left off with Ukraine being part of the Soviet Union after World War II, and the Soviets went back to work reconstructing Ukraine's decimated economy. Stalin is still the dictator of the USSR at this time, and they are pushing industry hard. (laughs) But it took agriculture, interestingly enough, it took it over 15 years to catch up um, to what it had been before World War II. And then to make matters worse... The two years after World War II, so 1946, 1947, a famine happened. They claimed nearly one million Ukrainians again. So, geez, it's like Ukraine cannot catch a break. Communist totalitarian control was back in business, and the secret police were all about it. Even though Stalin was still leading, Nikita Khrushchev, who would take over after Stalin died, if you remember from the Russian episodes... He actually worked in Ukraine during this time, and anyone who was against Soviet rule or had collaborated with Nazis during the war or who had been a slave in Germany, all of those people were now back in Ukraine, and they were all sent to concentration camps in the far north or in Siberia. So horrific. The idea was to stamp out all Western influences. And when I say Western, I don't just mean the United States. I mean Western Europe as well. And Ukrainian writers and artists and scholars were persecuted once again. And the West side of Ukraine, that side that was closer to Poland, it really put up a fight against the Soviets. Well into the 1950s, they were still fighting the Soviet Union. But after Stalin died in 1953, Khrushchev took over And since he knew Ukraine quite well, he wasn't so against Ukrainian culture as Stalin had been. The Crimean Peninsula was given back to Ukraine, and many Ukrainians joined the Communist Party during this time. This was the Khrushchev Thaw, as it was called. We talked about that in last past episodes. But it was just his loosening up of Stalin's policies, and it meant that the mass terror of Stalin was gone. The majority of concentration camp inmates started to return to Ukraine, and... The thaw was 
good in, in many respects, right? But it also kind of stoked the ambitions of this underground Ukrainian people who wanted independence. Ukrainian cultural elites started pressing more boldly for concessions in Moscow, and writers who had suffered under Stalin started receiving more praise. And it was kind of a, a moment for Ukraine to kind of breathe a little bit. But in the latter half of Khrushchev's reign, that changed again. Again, we see that teeter-totter, right? And Russification reemerged. Russia was back in. Ukrainian was no longer taught in schools. Ukrainian culture was stamped down again. But little groups were still meeting, kind of like cultural discussion circles. And so are you getting a picture for how stubborn the Ukrainians are? They have been through hell and back, and many are still fighting for independence. Sadly enough, the secret police uncovered many of these groups. They were imprisoned. Some of them were killed. But in the late 1950s and 60s, a new generation was rising up in Ukraine, and they started flirting with forbidden topics in journalism, and people started pushing back on this Russia-only, Russian language, Russian culture. They started pushing back on that. And it was like the 1920s again. Russia was starting to embrace its culture more and more. Interestingly enough, a communist leader, he was the communist secretary of Ukraine at the time, his name was Shalest, and Actually, he helped this happen. He supported Ukrainian culture and he defended the economic interests of Ukraine and was always pushing for more investment in Ukraine from the Soviet Union. And even with journalists being arrested during this time, the Soviet Union has always been a pretty horrible place for journalists in general. This movement continued to develop and lots of, like I said, informal meetings were happening. Beginning in 1970, a new leader took over in Moscow and that was Brezhnev. And there were signs that... The relative permissiveness of this time with Shalest as the secretary of Ukraine, that time was starting to draw to a close. And the head of the KGB, again, that's the Russian spy agency in Ukraine, actually got replaced by someone much harsher, and they cracked down on any anti-Soviet activities. Between January and April 1972, several hundred activists were arrested in waves and waves that swept across Ukraine. And in May 1973, Shalest, the secretary, actually lost all of his remaining party and government positions, and another man took over his position in Ukraine. His name was Sherbitsky. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I looked it up, but it's hard to find. And anyway, this Sherbitsky took over, and he was the secretary over Ukraine for 17 years until 1989, so until basically the end of the Soviet Union, roughly. And all of Shalest's supporters and governments were also taken out. There were far more arrests of human rights activists throughout the early 1970s. Many of them were actually sent to concentration camps. This is the 1970s. Or they were exiled, or they were sent to psychiatric institutions. And Russification intensified. Ukrainian culture is assaulted. The newspapers that had been opened under Shalest were shut down. They were purged. People in film and artists and writers all shut down. I think this is really interesting to see. When you start to see journalism, artists, filmographers, cinematographers being shut down by governments, that should be a ding, ding, ding sign. We're looking at Soviet Union. We're looking at oppression. And Ukraine wasn't performing economically either. There was little incentive to work, and the collective farm management was really poor at the time. And this was the time of the arms race with the United States, so the Soviets were obsessed with nuclear power. In April 1986, one of the nuclear power plants in Ukraine, um, it's called Chernobyl, it's just northwest of Kiev, it had the worst nuclear accident in history. This was pretty awful, and there are a lot of articles and even some films about it if you want to look it up. 
but dozens died in the immediate aftermath and tens of thousands of Ukrainians were evacuated. And an estimated 5 million people were exposed to super high levels of radiation. Hundreds of thousands received doses that were would increase the risk of cancer and even decades after the accident. So this is 1986. So obviously these people, m many of them are still alive. And decades after it, the incidence of, of cancer is much higher among the residents of the Chernobyl area than the general population of Ukraine. And Ukraine wasn't the only one who was struggling economically. The whole Soviet Union was struggling. So when Gorbachev came in, took over after Brezhnev, he instituted perestroika, which we know from the Russian episodes is like a restructuring of the economy, and also glasnost, which was an openness, so um, more communication on what was really going on. Everything had been clamped down, not very well communicated with the people, and now he was opening up about it. So popular involvement grew, and that meant that more voices were being heard. And so in some of these non-Russian republics of the Soviet Union, these policies opened up opportunity to voice not merely economic issues, but just national issues that were going on. And so from mid-1986, the Ukrainian press and the media really cautiously began to print about forbidden topics, public demonstrations from nationalists. They started to crop up. And in those three years from 1987 to 1989, we start to see new leaders emerge and they're pushing the Ukrainian language and the Ukrainian history and religion and bringing up religion. And so many of the Ukrainian people had been taught in school history that had major blank spots, things that had been totally taken out. We also see this in China currently, but especially in, during this time, like Stalin wasn't really talked about. The horrors of Stalin wasn't, were not talked about. Most Ukrainians did not know about the Great Famine of 1932-33, but then these mass graves were being unearthed, and so people were talking about it, and banned works were beginning to be published again, and religion was seeing a huge revival in 1988, and then the enormous scale of the Chernobyl accident, or the ca catastrophe that happened at the nuclear power plant, that started to come out as well of how big of a deal that had been. And then complaints in the Donbass region started coming out with where they started talking about these horrible conditions from industrial workers and coal mines and all these things started coming out in this period of glasnost or openness. And so there was this anti-communist resistance in the USSR. And obviously the USSR is going to meet all of this with propaganda attacks from the media and harassment and intimidation and even some arrests. But the Ukrainians were starting to get pretty bold, as were many other republics in the Soviet Union. And in 1989, this was a big year. There were elections in Ukraine. Now, in communist nations, sometimes they'll have, and I say this in air quotes, they'll have elections, but only Communist Party members are on the docket. Or there's only one candidate to vote for. It's kind of a joke. And they'll obviously make sure the guy they want to win wins. But in the case of these elections in 1989, they allowed non-communist candidates and they started to win. And it was humiliating to some communist leaders because voters would just cross their name out on the ballot, even if they were the only um, candidate running. They'd cross their name out. And the policy was that if they lost 50% of the vote, the election was declared void. And so it was just humiliating for them. In 1990, the first competitive elections happened and a Ukrainian parliament was allowed and they called it the Rada. And that calls, calls back to the Central Rada, that first brief little period when Ukraine had an independent government called the Central Rada after World War I. You see, they play on their history, right? They, that Ukrainian parliament, the Rada, replaced the Soviet one 
and a large group of pro-democracy leaders were voted in. And in January 1990, that's not very long ago, more than 400,000 people held hands and made a human chain that stretched 400 miles to Kiev from another city to show support for this. And Gorbachev started extending some level of freedom to the Soviet republics, but he still was hoping to have central control of foreign policy and the military and the financial system in Moscow. But students were starting to lead these mass demonstrations and hunger strikes, and the people were demanding more and more. They wanted full independence of Ukraine and many of these other nations as well. This is one of the reasons why Gorbachev is such a controversial figure in Russia, because people like Putin will say that he gave up the Soviet Union. Gorbachev considered himself a communist. He wanted to have central control. But by opening up the can of worms, he created kind of an environment where these countries were able to speak up and they got more and more bold. And that's why he's controversial. Not all Russians agree that he was good, even though in the West he's typically viewed very positively. So in, in August 1991, the government in Moscow collapsed and the Ukrainian parliament in an emergency session declared the full independence of Ukraine on August 24th, 1991. It then needed to be voted on by the people and on December 1st, Ukrainian citizens went to the polls in mass to vote for their independence. Over 90% voted in favor. And the Soviet Union was dissolved one week later, and in the United States, President George H.W. Bush declared the final victory of the West in the prolonged and very exhausting Cold War. A week after that referendum was voted on, meaning that Ukraine was independent, the leaders of Ukraine and Russia and Belarus agreed to establish something called the Commonwealth of Independent States, or the CIS. So the USSR was disbanded, but these countries were remaining close. They had a little bit of an agreement. Now let's pause here for just a moment. If Ukraine gained its independence in 1991, that means that Ukraine has been an independent nation for a little over 30 years. That is not very long. And after independence, Ukraine suffered economically, and it did not transform into a wholly European state as much as was hoped. It had a lot of problems to deal with. It had issues with sex trafficking and life expectancy fell and illegal drug trade. But it did make some strides in democracy and in relation to other nations, um, especially the United States. Churches were open again and a relatively free press was allowed. Armed forces became a thing. Citizenship was granted to more ethnicities than previously. And this is also very interesting. Ukraine wanted to be known as European rather than Eurasian. Now, Ukrainian leaders saw that agreement, the CIS, or Commonwealth of Independent States between Ukraine, Russia, and Belarus, they kind of saw that as like kind of like, let's divorce civilly. But Russia saw that as a way to retain some degree of domination over those countries. And so they obviously saw this agreement very differently from each other. And so they had disagreements. But Ukraine has mostly maintained kind of a bystander position with that agreement. Nuclear disarmament was also tricky at this time because Ukrainian leaders wanted to get rid of the nuclear weapons because they didn't realize that the nuclear arsenal that was on their soil had been huge. I'm talking third largest in the world. So right after independence, a lot of the nuclear arms went back to Russia. And then the Ukrainians started realizing that this really wasn't a very smart move since Russia was starting to kind of claim portions of Ukrainian territory like Crimea. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And so overall, Ukraine ended up destroying a lot of its nuclear arsenal um, since that time. Russia and Ukraine have also had issues over who controls the Black Sea fleet, 
which is a very important naval asset for the Soviet Union. Russia's like, nope, that's been ours. It always has been, but it's obviously on Ukraine's soil. So there's also been issues with that. But probably the thorniest issue between Ukraine and Russia has been the Crimean Peninsula, which is in the south of Ukraine. It touches part of Russia, and it's an area where ethnic Russians are the majority of the population. So in 1991, Crimea was granted status as an autonomous republic under Ukraine. So it's under Ukraine, but it means it has kind of its own individual freedoms. And pretty soon after that, a group of people in Crimea wanted to separate completely from Ukraine. We call these people separatists. You might have been seeing the word separatists in the news. Those are people who want to separate from Ukraine. And they were obviously supported by Russian politicians stating that Crimea should always have been Russian territory and never should have been given to Ukraine. So tensions in this region have been high ever since. And later we'll see that Russia ended up annexing or taking over Crimea. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So overall, relationships between Russia and Ukraine have been tricky since independence. Russia had a very, very difficult time perceiving, let alone accepting, that Ukraine was an independent country. And some Russians truly do view Ukrainians as like the same people as them. As a result, Russia reacted to Ukraine becoming independent more strongly than it did to the other Soviet Union countries, those those Soviet republics. And Ukraine knew this and thus has been very sensitive to any kind of pushes from Russia. So the relationship has been generally pretty tense. Since 1991, as I mentioned at the beginning of these episodes, Ukraine has remained largely more democratically minded than some of the other prior Soviet republics. The economy went downhill for a while and then it came back up. Ukrainians actually make up 77%-ish of the population, Russians make about 18%. Most Ukrainians speak both Russian and Ukrainian, and many actually speak Russian at home and read in Russian. So despite being pro-democracy, Russian culture and the Russian language is still obviously very big in Ukraine. In November 2004, a pro-democracy candidate and a pro-Russian candidate 
ran against each other. So 2004, they're running against each other. And the pro-democracy candidate was mysteriously hospitalized in the final days of the election. It was later discovered that he had been poisoned. And so the election was claimed to be rigged because obviously the pro-Russian candidate won. And crowds of people, they dressed in orange and they filled the streets of Kiev demanding fair elections. It was called the Orange Revolution. And they actually held another election, a completely separate election. And the pro-democracy candidate won. But later on in 2010, the pro-Russian candidate won. And so from 2010 to 2014, Ukraine had a president who was more pro-Moscow, pro-Russia than past leaders. And in 2013, this pro-Russia president, Viktor Yanukovych, I hope I pronounced that right, I really looked it up. Viktor Yanukovych rejected a deal for Ukraine to integrate more with the European Union or other European countries. And instead, he pursued ties with Russia. And keep in mind, Putin is president at this time. So he is working with Yanukovych. But many Ukrainians were not having this. Protesters set up camp in Kiev's main square. They started taking over government buildings. It was a big deal. They did not want this guy in power. And about 80 people died in these protests all over the country, right in front of the cameras. Riot police and government snipers, they used live ammunition and they would just kill dozens of pro-European demonstrators up until February 2014. The images shocked the world. The world was paying attention at this time. But later in 2014, the Ukrainian parliament voted Yanukovych out from power and placed a more pro-democracy leader in his place. Obviously, this did not make Putin happy. Yanukovych actually ended up in Russia. They ran him out of town. And Russia still claims that this change of power was an illegal coup. So Putin and Russia, they decide right after this happens, they decide to come in and annex the Crimean Peninsula in March 2014. So here's how that went down. To annex something means to add, like in short terms, it means to add. So it's when a country formally proclaims sovereignty or kind of takes over a territory that is outside of its domain. So Crimea, to give some background on that, Crimea has been fought over for years because it's very strategically important geographically. It sits right on the Black Sea. So even though it was part of Ukraine, it was, again, a region that had special distinction, autonomy from Ukraine, and it had a large military bases, kind of like how the U.S. has bases in Japan and Germany. So many of the citizens in Crimea are ethnic Russians, and after Yanukovych was kicked out of Ukraine... Crimea was torn. Some people liked what had happened, but others wanted to leave Ukraine and rejoin Russia. So that's also a good thing to stop and pause and think about. Not all Ukrainians feel the same about Russia. This this would have been like one state in the United States wanting to secede from the U.S. and join Canada or join Mexico. Bands of random gunmen, so this is in 2014 in March, these bands of random gunmen start seizing these government buildings in Crimea. And everyone's like, who are these guys? Until it finally becomes apparent that they were the Russian military. And using force, they brought Crimea under military occupation. And then Crimeans ended up voting overwhelmingly to become part of Russia. And most of the world, it, it, this was relatively bloodless from what we understand. And most of the world saw this secession vote or all of these Crimeans voting to join Russia. They see it as illegitimate. It seems very likely that the Russians were intimidating the Crimeans as it, they were under Russian military occupation at the time. It also happened very quickly. 
and the Ukrainian law considered it illegal. So as a result, the U.S. and the European Union, they imposed economic sanctions on Russia for doing this, but nothing really changed, and Crimea is now part of Russia. So I hope that explains the Crimean Peninsula incident a little bit clearer since it's been talked about a lot in the news recently. Meanwhile, at the same time, 2014, unrest in the east and south of Ukraine was also hot. Lots of pro-Russian separatists wanting to separate from Ukraine. Again, they are highly influenced by the Russians. So do you remember in part one when we talked about the importance of the Donbass region with its coal and heavy industry? So there are areas in the Donbass region called the Donetsk and the Lugansk. And these two regions have separatists who actually voted to leave Ukraine. But Ukraine obviously doesn't want that. And so there has been actually an undeclared war called the War in Donbass ever since 2014. It has been going on for more than seven years. It's taken over 14,000 lives and it has displaced over 200,000 refugees who have fled to Russia and neighboring countries. Now, this is so interesting because this is not talked about very widely. Russia has obviously supported the separatists, right? Because the separatists are pro-Russian. And Ukraine has tried to hold ground. The issue has been land borders and strategic influence. So this is why in January of, in February of 2022, this year, the world became very aware when Putin started putting troops outside of this region, the Donbass region. Because this region had been a hotspot for seven years. So when these two particular regions in the Donbass area declared, and I air quote this, independence, because they're pro-Russian, they declared independence. And so Putin claimed that he had permission to enter Ukraine from them. And that was talked about, this is just the last couple of weeks. So this obviously, a lot of people are like, no, you don't have permission to enter Ukraine. <laughs> Sorry. But he said that he did. This obviously is a threat to international order because it flies in the face of the principle that Ukraine is a sovereign state with its own territory. To most of us, we'd never heard of the War of Donbass and what's been going on there, but the U.S. military obviously been watching the situation for years, and so when troops were set up outside of that region, it made headline news. Basically, Ukraine and Russia have been at war with each other since 2014, and what has happened in the last few weeks since the end of February 2022, that is an enormous escalation of a previous conflict. Since 2014, the leadership in Ukraine has tried to be less dependent on Russia for oil and other resources, obviously had a conflict going on with Russia, but it does still rely a lot on Russia for natural gas and oil, amongst other things. And Russia has responded to this conflict with cyber attacks. It has supported the separatists and has kind of loomed over Ukraine. And the current president, Zelensky, he won the election with promises to make peace with Russia and to end the war in the Donbass. So hopefully this is kind of giving us a sense for what's going on. We're now to today's current events generally. We see that most of the world is supporting Ukraine. I'm recording this on March 7th of 2022. So we're seeing that even China has asked Russia to back down. Belarus is supporting Russia. A few other Soviet bloc countries are also doing that. Cuba has voiced uh, unequivocal support for Russia. Putin has given quite a few speeches about why he is invading Ukraine. And reading between the lines, it seems as though Ukraine's support of Western democratic ideals and then its desire to join NATO are at the top of the list. 
you will remember that NATO is that alliance of countries who are pro-democracy, and it was originally created to keep the Soviet Union in check. So it appears as though Putin feels like these Western ideas are taking Ukraine outside of its, quote, rightful place within the Russian sphere as it had been hundreds of years, for hundreds of years. And after learning about how Russia had such a difficult time grappling with the independence of Ukraine, I think for me, it has just given me further context to why Putin is saying that. I'm not saying that it's right. I very much disagree with Putin here. But it does give context to his perspective and others like him. The context also helps us understand why the Ukrainians are fighting so hard, right? Because they have for hundreds of years. And we are seeing the day-by-day -day effects of this invasion on the people of Ukraine. And it's very discouraging. And the images are heartbreaking. And I'm watching it just like you are. I'm personally horrified. And there are thousands of articles being published daily on this. So I'm not going to go into the actual events that have happened. But it does appear to me that the media in Russia is obviously very pro-Russian. It's a propaganda machine. And that many Russians are being convinced that Ukraine is a threat to their nation. And there are also Russians that are protesting the invasion. So they are getting media from outside of the propaganda machine. And that's encouraging. The media outside of Russia is generally very pro-Ukraine from what I can see and sees this invasion as extremely dangerous and terrible and a threat to international order. Many Eastern European countries are uh, rightfully sitting on edge because I think the idea is that if Ukraine falls, who's to say that they won't be next? So Poland, for example, has a very large border with Ukraine. So they are very aware of this. This is a very tense moment in history, but I do hope that this context of seeing the last 100 years of relationships between these two particular countries, it, hopefully it deepens our knowledge and increases our ability to process what's going on currently. Having this foundational knowledge can help us see through conspiracy theories and false ideas. There are many people that are trying to capitalize and make money on a crisis by spreading around false information and getting you to click on it. So hopefully this helps you to see the basic foundation if you want to go into detail on any of these things, I will recommend a book in my show notes that has been very helpful to me. It's very history heavy, but if this is interesting to you, I do recommend it. And if these episodes helped you, please share them, text it, share it on Instagram, sign up for my email newsletter on my website. I so appreciate it. My biggest hope is that we can go out and make the world a little wiser. 